California is facing a housing crisis. Rent is more than 50% higher in California than in the median state. This crisis hits low-income Californians the hardest, leaving them with less money to save and pushing many Californians out of the state or onto the streets. More than half of California households are rent burdened, which means they spend more than a third of their income on rent, about 10 percentage points higher than the national average. Why is housing so expensive in California, and how can it roll back this crisis? I am a believer in supply and demand, and there is plenty of data to show that it impacts housing prices in the San Francisco Bay Area. The rough estimate is over the last 20 years, the Bay Area has created 10 jobs for every one home. Land use regulations in some of the places where people most want to live limit the supply of new housing. While these places were often at one point affordable to people making incomes of, of all ranges, the supply hasn't been permitted to accommodate that increasing demand. California had an incredible economic boom, the really remarkable sustained period of economic growth, and it built housing like it was in a recession. California's housing crisis was caused by housing production lagging behind demand. Building more homes can fix the problem, but that's easier said than done. State and local laws make home building impossible or too costly. There is a burden of proof uh, on the planning department to say, yeah, actually this housing is necessary and desirable. And if it is necessary and desirable, then we should be building it. And if it's not, then we shouldn't. But for some reason, that's up for public debate. Most of the state is zoned for single-family homes only, meaning that duplexes, let alone apartment buildings, are illegal. The places where we've seen reform on single-family zoning recently, uh, Minneapolis, for example, eliminated single-family zoning and replaced it with triplex zoning. And an Oregon law, which allows duplexes, and in some cases up to fourplexes. And these rules are very focused on what's called missing middle housing. Anything uh, in between a detached single-family home and a bigger elevator apartment building. Minimum parking requirements, minimum lot sizes, and lengthy permitting processes can stack up so many barriers that new housing is too expensive to build. If you have a law that says like every apartment you build or every condo has to come with X number of parking spaces, you can't build housing for people who don't want to own cars. And digging a parking structure is really expensive. In Los Angeles, we're talking between thirty dollars and $50,000 a space and sometimes much higher. When you have to expend a lot of capital up front on your parking space, you can't build as much housing as you thought you could. And that doesn't just make those housing units more expensive, but it makes all the housing units around them more expensive because you've just depressed the overall supply. It's clear what caused California's housing crisis. Policymakers both at the state level and in California's cities and counties failed to challenge strict anti-housing regulations. As the state's population and economy expanded, housing production failed to keep pace. The path to fixing the housing crisis and easing the burden of housing costs on disadvantaged Californians is simple. Cut back the restrictive and outdated policies that limit housing production and build more homes. Welcome back. And now to further discuss the issues just raised by that video, and barriers to affordable housing generally. Uh, we have an expert panel, uh, some folks uh, well-known in California. Uh, I think that uh, you're gonna find this a very interesting panel with some uh, very diverse views. Uh, starting off, we have Laura Foote, 
who is the founder and executive director of YIMBY Action. Uh, YIMBY, for those of you who aren't familiar with it, stands for Yes in My Backyard. It is a pro-housing organization. And I can tell you from having traveled around California that Laura, uh, some people call her a hero. Some people say she's just intimidating. Uh, but everyone says that she is hugely influential when it comes to discussing housing. Second up will be Ricardo Flores, who's the executive director of LIST, the Low Income uh, Support Corporation, uh, Local Initiative Support Corporations in San Diego. Uh, he is a former chief of staff to Councillor uh, Suzanne Davis, uh, and I'm sorry, Councillor Marty Emerald, and a former aide to Congresswoman Susan Davis. And uh, LISC uh, is invested over $232 million in grants, loans, and equity investment in low-income communities. And finally, uh, up will be Jennifer Hernandez, a partner with Holland and Knight, who is one of the leading experts on, on uh, environmental law in California. She's a member of several boards, including the California League of Conservation Voters, uh, Cal Forward, as you heard, uh, sustainable development. Uh, she's also, I, I am told that uh, Willie Brown, the former mayor, declared October 9th, 2002, Jennifer Hernandez Day in San Francisco. So we're really honored to have Jennifer here today to talk to us a little bit about some of the regulations that are standing in the way of affordable housing. And with that, I'm going to turn it over to Laura and let her lead off here. Uh, so Laura, take it away. Hi, um, my name is Laura Foote. Uh, I run an organization called Yimby Action. That's Yes in My Backyard. Um, intimidating as I think one of uh, the nicer things probably people have said about me. Uh, we, we do intend to really transform the way America lives. Um, our real goal is to create abundant housing everywhere. Uh, so that people have access to the opportunities that are being locked up right now in the most expensive neighborhoods. Um, we believe that there's a general housing shortage and that we need more housing of every kind. And really that means in every neighborhood. Um, neighborhoods that have maintained what we call exclusionary zoning, that is zoning that only allows for often single family homes where it is illegal to build multifamily housing, whether that's subsidized affordable housing or whether that's market rate regular old apartments um, we believe that this is a institution that is blocking people from the access and opportunity these fantastic school districts that it is impoverishing people it is impoverishing america it is keeping us from meeting our climate goals all of these ideas are tied up into this uh, very American tradition of blocking people from living in neighborhoods. Um, exclusionary zoning really has its roots in racism. It was designed to keep black and brown people out of neighborhoods. When we got rid of explicitly racist housing policies, communities across the US adopted exclusionary zoning that was designed to exclude based on income 
um, as a proxy for race. They said that we're not going to allow the kind of housing that lower income and black and brown people are more likely to have access to. We're going to down zone communities. We're only going to allow single family homes, often single family homes on large lots. Um, all of that is the history of zoning. And I'm gonna kind of assume that this crowd knows a decent amount about the history of zoning and how and why we're here today. Um, and so I'm gonna go a little bit more, and it's the Cato Institute, so I'm gonna go a little more ideological. Um, you know, there are different reasons to come to the idea of liberalizing zoning. You can come from the social justice orientation where you believe that fundamentally to reduce the racial wealth gap, for uh, younger people to have access to the kinds of opportunities that their parents did, all of this will inevitably lead you to the conclusion that we must liberalize zoning and allow apartments. You can come to it from uh, the environmental perspective that uh, the number one factor in emissions often that local governments can do is allow more housing. We need to be living in denser, more walkable communities in order to bring down our carbon emissions. You can totally get to it from a climate justice perspective. And then the third way is the economic argument. Um, you can come to it from an employer perspective that uh, one of the main drivers of the cost of employing people is housing costs, and we need to bring that down. You can come to it from it's costing the U.S. economy um, an estimated trillion dollars a year in all of this denied growth that we could be enjoying. Um, there are a lot of economic opportunity arguments that you can come to, and those are traditional Cato-y arguments, right? That third category that I'm talking about of liberalizing zoning, uh, the concept of deregulating something, we're like losing uh, badly needed opportunity. That argument, I, I think the one that has traditionally been thought of as like uh, the way that Cato-y people come into embracing liberalizing zoning. Um, and the truth is, though, that there is no ideologically cohesive argument for maintaining exclusionary zoning. There's no economically liberal argument for maintaining exclusionary zoning. There's no economically conservative argument for maintaining exclusionary zoning. You can get people to make very tortured arguments for local control, uh, but they're not very committed to like a powerful local government. If you talk to the same person about how they really love local control, often that same person will make an argument for why the federal government should be in charge of healthcare, right? Th this local control thing is not something that they deeply believe like all power should vest with city councils. They, they don't actually mean it. It's a means to an end. They have more power and influence at the city council level, and these are often NIMBYs. These are people who do not want housing to be built in their neighborhood, and they have a lot of power and influence at the local government level, and so that's where they want to maintain power. Um, and that you know, makes sense to me. I want to move these decisions to higher levels of government because that's where I believe the better angels of our nature will take hold. And I think it's easier to get people to say yes in general to housing than yes to a specific housing being built right next to them. Um, but the same person making these arguments is really going to say local control, local control, but there's no ideological cohesion there. Um, so Local control is this means to an end, and where it has taken root in the Republican Party is that that really they do want exclusionary zoning, and you can make an aesthetic argument, 
or you can make a racist argument. And the racist arguments are really becoming more and more full-throated. Um, you can really see that the Republican Party is the one that is unfortunately sort of getting on board with these arguments. Um, if you had asked me six years ago, seven years ago, I would have told you that there was definitely a bipartisan path towards ending exclusionary zoning in the same way that ending mass incarceration seems to have a bipartisan path potentially. I believed that there was, you know, a Republican Party that had some principles of economic liberalism that would mean that we were we were pretty likely to get to federal or state action that would liberalize zoning because there is this clear economic argument. Um, but right now, we have a Republican Party that is fundamentally motivated by racism and by exclusion. And you can see this in the embrace of the St. Louis couple that waved their guns at nearby protesters. And the same fear that they have of people coming into their neighborhoods is what leads them to advocating for exclusionary zoning. Their fear of the other is what leads them to wave guns. It is what leads them to ban apartments. And if you if your party is fundamentally motivated by racism and fear, that's when you start arguing for maintaining exclusionary zoning. A core part of their argument was fear that people are going to come in and that is what we want. We do want integration. We do want access to opportunity. Trump has raised this rallying call for protecting the suburbs, and his argument is about racially motivated fear. And the question the Republican Party really faces is, is it going to be a party of racism and fear, or is it going to be a party of principles again? And over and over again, I feel like the answer has been, we're going to be a party of fear. And the Cato Institute in particular, I think, needs to ask itself, how much has it been complicit in adding lipstick to the pig? Or is it actually fighting to, to put morals back into the party? I don't know the answer to that question. I, I can't answer that question for you. Um, but I do think that if the Republican Party is able to become a party of ideas again, then we can see that it's inevitable, no matter what the ideas are, eventually you get to liberalizing zoning. And so you can see that like any ideals you have will lead you to often policies that will make people's lives better. I, I want the Republican Party to be a party of ideals again. Um, and, and I know I'm like a little bit abusing my position here as, as being able to speak to all of you who are tuning in. Um, but I do think you'll see it affect so many. When I talk about zoning, I'm often in this like weird little world where we're talking about RH1 and all of this little nuance, but what are we really talking about? When we're talking about housing, we're talking about access to opportunity, we're talking about integration, we're talking about the ways in which people live. Um, we're talking about human lives and we're talking about who gets to say no, who gets to say yes. And I want you all to be the party that welcomes people again. I want the Cato Institute to bring access to opportunity to become a fundamental American value again. Um, and so I hope you all do that work. Thank you.
Well, thank you, Laura. I appreciate that. I'll take it to heart, except for the fact that, of course, Cato is not Republican. Uh, we are a libertarian organization, and uh, and I just thought I needed to put that out there on that. We are nonpartisan. We do not uh, associate with either political party. In fact, uh, both have plenty of reason to dislike us as we go on that. Anyway, next up on this, I'm going to go to Ricardo Flores, who's got some uh, comments of his own. Yeah, thank you for inviting me here today. Uh, my, again, my name is Ricardo Flores. I'm the executive director of the Local Initiative Support Corporation. We're a national nonprofit that uh, is effectively a nonprofit bank, essentially, and we help build affordable housing. Uh, our money comes from banks because of their CRA obligations, and so we help build, we provide loans and other products out there. So that's why we're engaged in this conversation, because effectively, our job at LISC is to take money from Wall Street, to put it on Main Street, or Guy uh, Maine, if you will. Uh, but that's really our goal is to do that. And so, uh, you know, I want to first start off and thank Laura because the, the YIMBY movement in California is not that old. Um, but it, in, in the short amount of time that it's been out there, has done an incredible job, I think, of really bringing this issue to the forefront. Uh, I think about my own family. My father uh, is, is come around to really saying, you know what, I think generations after me, you and, and others, are in a bad spot because when he was in San Diego, he had the opportunity to move east, if you will, outside of San Diego for cheaper land. Well, there's no moving east anymore. There's no moving north anymore. There's no moving south anymore. There's just no more land. And, and so those are issues that the Yimby movement really brought up. Uh, the, the part of the conversation I'm going to bring up a little bit is a little bit more about the single family zoning and kind of the history of it. Uh, and really it's kind of the moral side to the issue that Laura was bringing up. And so I first want to start off by just kind of just for a second, you know, don't close your eyes, but just for a second in your mind, think about your own community, where you were brought up, where you were born and raised. What do the nice parts of those communities look like? Who lives there? What do the schools look like? What do the children of those schools look like? What do the parks look like? What do all the other amenities look like? And we can all pretty much draw the same picture in our mind's eye of what those neighborhoods look like and who lives in those neighborhoods. And the question really is, why and how did that happen? You know, I was a product of two principals, uh, educators that I was raised in a middle, middle class environment in a middle class community. But I like to say I was grandfathered into this, that community because nobody looked like me in that community. None of my family members lived the way I did. And so at first you start to think, well, it's just because my parents went to school and got a degree and therefore they were able to afford it. But is that really what happened? And so that's what I wanna talk about uh, with you all today and, and then share with you what we're doing here in San Diego because we really do feel so compelled by this issue that we have to do something about it and we are going to do something about it, especially since this issue is uh, a local issue in a lot of ways that this, our city councils are locally the ones that have the power to do that. And so if your local city council has the majority of folks of color and others, I don't know how they can stand uh, and oversee a city that is perpetuating segregation with their land use laws. And so here's sort of the history. So we all know this uh, New York Times article that came out, 1619. Uh, and really the part I wanted to highlight here is just the quote she put in there. There's nothing natural about segregation. It was created through government policy. It must be undone through government policy. That's really important. People didn't just wake up one day and say, you know, we all want to live together. And they just all want to live together. They want to live certain ways in apartments and in neighborhoods that are not that great. That's where they want to be. No, <laughs> it happened on purpose. And so here's the history. So, whoops. So um, 
this is a gentleman who I think many of you probably know uh, in the scholarship world. He wrote this article on the Atlantic about uh, 200, about uh, reparations and started a real conversation. Uh, and a lot of the work that he got in terms of his article came from this man. This is Richard Rothstein. So Richard Rothstein is a professor from Berkeley. He's actually an education professor. And he was trying to understand segregation and why there was so much segregation. And lo and behold, he came up, came up discovered, rediscovered, as he likes to say, the history of zoning and what zoning was used. And so Tanahasi Coast, the gentleman before, actually encouraged him to go to his publisher. And Richard put out this book that has been selling out and people really responding to it. And again, Richard says it, and the book says it, a forgotten history. It's a forgotten history. It's not hidden. It's just forgotten. And this is the history. So early in the United States, in the early 1900s, and probably even prior to that, we had explicit laws that said, if you are a person of color, you cannot live here, period, end of story, no more conversation. But at some point, the Supreme Court came back and said, well, we can't do that. We can't do that. That's just too, that, that's just against the spirit of our own country. And so they ruled and they said, no, actually, you, you cannot do that. You have to allow for, uh, you cannot just discriminate against people of color. And so that was allowed. And then about a decade later, they came back in Amber versus Euclid. And they said, but you know what you can do? you can actually say that you don't want an apartment in your neighborhood. That's totally legal. That's totally acceptable. And remember, we're talking about the people that lived in apartments at that time. It was a known who lived in apartments. It was poor people, poor people of color, because they didn't have access to other resources. And this was a Supreme Court justice at the time. This is what he said. He said the apartments are a parasite. If you build one, another will come. It would detract from the safety of depriving the children of a quiet place to play. These were their rational reasons <laughs> for what they did. Uh, that has so impacted us now. And why is this so important? Well, it's important because at some point the federal government uh, decided, you know what, we have to be more engaged. When the Great Depression happened, they said, we have to get more engaged. You know, we can't just let this country go fall down completely. And so Roosevelt went out there and just like we've done in past uh, crises, he starts pumping money into the economy. And the one place he wants to pump money is in the home ownership, into land and into those communities. And so, but they had to understand what those communities look like. Who lived in these neighborhoods? Where are they going to put the money? Because remember, this is still a very segregated uh, world that we're in. And so they came up with the, uh, the department that went around and, and basically created what are called redlining maps. And I have one right here. But that was the government's attempt to understand where to invest that and, and to invest money. And that's what they did. So now we start to see a series of housing laws and bills that get passed, whether it's World War II, whether it's the Depression, whatever it may be. But they're going to rely upon the same maps that they were using to identify where people live. And what's fascinating is the maps are really interesting to look at. I think everyone can look at the map from their own community and say, sure, that's where people of color live. That's where poor people live. This is that. But read the maps. Read what they say. Because effectively, the federal government was breaking the law, of breaking the Constitution. It was effectively saying to communities and to banks and others, invest in this area because this area is homogenous. It's all white. There's no people of color. There's no apartment buildings. Oh, and there's this thing called R zoning. There's this thing called minimum lot sizes or single family. That's going to protect those communities, because remember, you're already dealing with a population that's of color that's already disenfranchised and living in poverty because there's no resources. So if you're worried that they're going to somehow accumulate money, that's not going to happen. So what we're going to do is we're going to provide zoning changes. And so again, that's why this is such an important conversation, because you're effectively the group of individuals in this country that have been left out of this whole wealth building, but also in, in, uh, denied opportunity in nicer and better communities. 
So this, let's look at this a little bit here. This is Levittown, New York. Levittown, New York was built in 1947, the year my father was born. It, it was, uh, the federal government provided the Levitt family with, um, uh, with insurance and others, uh, uh, you know, back their, back their, 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 uh, their development. The government provided loans to people to get into the, into the housing. And again, this was not very controversial in 1947. There were just no people of color gonna live there. Sure, goes without saying. Well, what's been the, uh, the ramification? Well, look at it today. Today, 75% of Levittown, New York is white and 1% is black. That's shocking. Levittown, Pennsylvania, same thing. 88% white, 3% black. Again, these were government sponsored uh, uh, policies. These were government funded uh, pro projects and they were explicitly denying individuals wealth. And many of our families can trace back, right? My grandfather went and fought in World War II. And, he, and, and so we can trace our families back to the GI Bill and to some of these exact programs that created those homeownership opportunities. Even President Obama, at the end of his term, uh, came out with this kind of quiet report that said, hey, we got to do something about exclusionary zoning laws. So even he acknowledged that. And so really, again, this is the map of San Diego. If you're from San Diego, you look at the red areas and you know exactly what communities they are. You know who lives in those communities. And so what, and, and, and Richard Rossing uses a really strong word about this. This is an apartheid. This is an apartheid. The red areas are where people of color live and they still live. And the other areas are where secondary white folks live. And, it's, and those areas, the green areas, oddly enough, are still the best areas of San Diego. They're still the prime location of San Diego. They still have the best schools in San Diego. And so we, so knowing all this information, what do we do, right? And so what we, and, and, and just to give you kind of another little flavor here, um, these were articles in the Union Tribune at the time, just kind of talking about what was going on about the zoning system and how this was happy. And this is probably in every city. You have articles going back and forth talking about what they're doing. In this particular community, it actually says, down here at the bottom, if you can read it, it says no apartments, no factories, no only restricted to the Caucasian race. Again, not a surprise in, in knowing all this. And this again is the city uh, realtor board actually saying, hey, we need to do something. So what, what, what do we do about this, right? Because that's the challenge. And so uh, we have a coalition, uh, a coalition of the Chicano Federation, of uh, Urban League, uh, Black Chamber of Commerce, Black Contractors, this group called Casa Familiar, really a black and brown coalition. And what we're saying to the city council is, especially to the majority women of color on the city council to represent these areas, we're saying to them, how can you in good conscience uh, run and oversee a $1.6 billion organization that is effectively has laws on the books that have created an apartheid and still do? <laughs> how can you do that? How can you morally do that, right? But the question they, government will come back and say, well, what do we do? How do we fix this problem? Solve it for us, right? <laughs> and so what we, what we did was we actually found a law that the city passed in 2015 called the Small Lot Subdivision Ordinance. And the law allows for you to subdivide your property uh, in, into four parcels. You can build on it and sell it. You could just sell them off or you can build on them and rent them out, however you decide. The problem is, is it's only allowed in multifamily areas. So if I'm a multifamily developer and you tell me I can either sublot my land or build a whole apartment complex and rent it out or sell the whole thing, I'm not gonna, I'm gonna take advantage of the multifamily, not this sublot division ordinance. But LA, LA copied the same law, interestingly enough. So San Diego provided LA an idea and LA adopted it. Again, only in multifamily areas, but here 
in LA, architects and others have really grabbed onto it because they've been able to create product out in LA that shows us in San Diego what could look like. And this is what's below here. This is a single family lot. In fact, where the request for council action is up here, this is actually a home that's a three bedroom, three bath, single family home. And right next door, they have this four parcel piece of land with four homes on it, car, driveways and everything. And the key thing here is that it can be done. We know it can be done. But for cities like San Diego, they've had a bad track record of allowing developers to go a little crazy. You'll notice here that on this project, you're still preserving the sidewalk. You're still preserving the tree canopy. And you only have one ingress and egress, meaning you only have one driveway. So you're not fundamentally changing anything. I can still walk on that street. I can still get shade from the trees. I can still talk to my neighbors. But what I'm saying is you cannot dictate to me the land value. And again, so if we're looking at, I live in a community called Kensington, this, a, a land like this would cost us, let's say a million plus. Well, if I divide this into four, that's 250. There's no way on the open market, someone's gonna pay a million dollars for one fourth of a piece of land that was worth a million in total, right? And then you add construction costs on top of that. And now you've actually hit what every politician is trying to do, which is build this elusive middle-class housing, right? And now you have that opportunity. And part of why this is so important to us as a coalition is that for us, we know this is gonna change. California EMB and those groups have already told us and proven to us that the, that the, the status quo is not acceptable. It's just not acceptable and it will change. I don't know when, but it will. What we're saying though, is with this proposal is we now can realize wealth building in our communities. Again, that same community, Kensington, where I live, a million dollars to live here, very expensive to rent, very expensive, but you start cutting the land in segments. Now the price drops. Now the value, now others can now gain on that value. Really important. Or if you're a homeowner and you're seeing, hey, my kids are never going to own home ownership, subdivide the land a little bit. Give them something to work off of. Give them debt to go to a bank to get more debt to actually realize whatever their dreams are. So, and then the interesting thing about this is we found that. We talk about uh, uh, community character, right? And those are a lot of code words for community character. So this is an article, this is, an edit this is the editorial page of the San Diego Tribune, at the Union Tribune at the time, in 1924. And this individual's writing in because there's a discussion on zoning happening in the city. And he or she is saying, you're gonna destroy my opportunity if I wanna sell my land or put a granny flat and put somebody, you're gonna destroy fundamentally my culture in 1925 of home ownership or being able to do what I'd like to with my land. And so the other thing that I think is fascinating about this discussion is very few generations have actually lived in single family. My grandfather who grew up in, in, in Arizona didn't live in a single family home, didn't even know what a single family home was, but he raised my father in one and my father raised me in one. And if I had children, I would probably be raising them in one. There's a short window of when we've had single family zoning. Before that, we never had it. It didn't exist that way. And so we're, we're kind of harking back to this mythical past, but the challenge with this mythical past is it's, it's loaded with racism, with laws that have kept us apart as a community and as a city. And I think, again, the, the, the big challenge we are facing, and I think uh, Laura brought this up in California, is that we strongly believe in California uh, that we are 
progressive, that we are moving and doing things that are helping people of color, helping poor people, helping all of those folks. And yet, fundamentally, we're not doing anything. And that's the problem that Californians have here, is that, and especially in communities that I'm working with, uh, you know, they, you know, the, the, again, the same community I live in, they'll say, hey, Black Lives Matters, uh, you know, we're supportive of this, supportive of that. But then when you start to bring conversations like this up, they get uneasy. And the irony of them getting uneasy is if we're effective in San Diego at being able to subdivide the land and provide it out, those same homeowners are actually going to benefit. Because right now, if you go sell your single family home in Kensington, you can charge a million dollars, but you can only do one thing. You can only build a single family home. And on top of that, you can't even build on the whole home, right? You have, to, you, you, have to, you have to provide what's called a front yard, just wasted space that doesn't allow you to be used, right? And so, but when you go to sell that home, what are you gonna tell the prospective buyer? You're gonna say, oh, by the way, you could scrap this whole piece of land and you could subdivide it and do all this. So I'm gonna price that into the price point when I sell it to you. So you're gonna make out. And so this, there, there is really no, the only answer from what we're trying to accomplish in San Diego is kind of what Laura mentioned before. And I don't think this country's ever done it. I don't, I can't think of a time in our history where white folks have said, yes, we will have, we will live next to black population, or black folks or brown folks. It's never happened. And so if we really want to have that true integration where our kids aren't just we're not just praying together and playing together where we're or even going to school together. We're actually physically living next door to each other, not just people of color, but also people with different uh, social economic background or economic backgrounds. That's the fundamental question here because the homeowner is not going to lose any value. The city or the state that does it, what's the cost? Zoning is in your mind. It's an imagination. It just says you can't do something. It's not like a physical barrier. It's just here. So if you change the law, What's the cost? There's no cost to the law changing. It's not like you're saying, let's implement a big expensive program. No. So the fundamental question comes down to, are you willing to live with people that don't look like you, that weren't raised like you, that oftentimes don't have the same background that you do? Are you willing to do that? Because if you are, then help us. If you're not, then that, you're an obstacle to us. And that's a challenge. Uh, and I think it was also mentioned that Donald Trump in some ways as president has really kind of allowed folks to really articulate how they feel. The problem is demographics. Demographics in the 1960s, we weren't looking at the world and going, oh, this is gonna be, and I hate this term, minority majority. No, we were just trying to get a piece of the pie and people were just like the, like the saying says, I'm a man, <laughs> right? I am a man, I'm a human being, please treat me that way. No longer is the Black Lives Matter movement and others saying we are humans. It's not about we're humans. It's about we deserve opportunity. We deserve opportunity to build wealth. And we're going to realize that because at the end of the day, the demographics are shifting such in California that right now, and I think in the country right now, every uh, child that's going to school 18 and under is Latino. There's Latino, the majority are Latinos. This is the world, if the United States our, if we want to honor our grandfathers, if we want to honor the founding fathers and continue this incredible experiment where you can come to a country and you can actually say, you know what, I believe this way or I love this person or whatever it may be. And, and if people say, you know, that's fine. That's fine. That's fine. Just pay your taxes and obey the law. If we want to honor that tradition, we have got to pass wealth on 
We've got to reduce laws like this. And this is just the, really the tip of the iceberg. I was reading an article the other day about international relations, and I didn't realize this, but the field of international relations doesn't talk about racism or colonialism. Only one school of thought, and that's how the Howard University has this uh, international relations thought. These are going to be very challenging things for us to do as a country. But we knew, and the founding fathers of this country knew when they were signing that document that they were already kind of putting a poison pill in place, and they talked about it. It's up to us, it's our obligation, if we want this experiment to continue, to really do these things, to allow for people to have wealth, to allow for people to live, and to be able to be a part of society. If we don't, then it's going to be a real challenge for us as a country going forward. And so, like Laura said, I don't think this is a, a partisan issue. Uh, at the end of the day, this is an issue about wealth building, which everybody in this country agrees on, which people come from all over the world as, as immigrants to try to realize. And it's also about realizing that there were mistakes made in the past and that we need to change those mistakes. But fortunately for us, by changing this mistake in the way that we're talking about it, we're going to spur our economy. We're going to provide more housing. We're going to lower the price point for housing. We're going to we're going to do more on top of what the moral issue is that we're facing today. Uh, and so anyway, I just want to say thank you to Cato for giving me the opportunity to, to share my thoughts on this important issue. Well, thank you very much, Ricardo. We really appreciate that. And up next, and our last speaker is Jennifer Hernandez, who's going to talk about something a little bit different, but we certainly related. And we'll hear about some more regulatory uh, barriers to affordable housing. So Jennifer, take it away. Thank you so much and uh, thanks to Cato and to my fellow panelists for uh, really a, a thoughtful discussion uh, uh, of, of one issue, which is zoning. Uh, just to put everyone on the same playing field, California has already adopted a state law that allows single family homeowners with very few exceptions uh, to create uh, up to two additional units uh, in their home. One can be inside the actual frame of the home. It's called a junior accessory dwelling unit or granite, granny flat. And another can be in the backyard and that's um, uh, more like a backyard cottage. Um, these were huge breakthroughs uh, in the uh, longstanding for reasons you've heard about uh, idea that we should really, 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 really do more to increase um, uh, density in single family home neighborhoods. And uh, that's as far as we've gone so far. Um, currently, the debate on zoning is about allowing it, uh, these uh, parcels, these single family parcels, to be subdivided to create new ownership parcels uh, and create home ownership. Because home ownership turns out, as we all know, I think to be an incredibly important stepping stone uh, for people. Uh, to accumulate and then pass on wealth. And the benefits of home ownership is uh, if you have the opportunity to visit the Habitat for Humanity website, it's pretty hard to overestimate um, the benefits of home ownership, ranging from higher voter participation rates to better educational and health outcomes for family members. There's something about having a stable home that cuts across a whole lot of otherwise pretty troublesome uh, uh, potential ways to get uh, in trouble. And, uh, uh, and certainly my family, uh, both the Mexican-American side and the Italian-American side 
uh, have benefited from home ownership over the years, uh, uh, including through widowship and all other uh, imaginable sort of um, uh, uh, consequences that befall families, job losses, illnesses, kids who need college loans, down payment assistance. That home ownership theme uh, uh, is really a pretty core part of our fundamental civil rights focus on housing law. Uh, and so I just wanted to make sure that when we talk about single family home uh, neighborhoods and zoning to allow basically subdivision uh, and creation of new single family homes in those neighborhoods uh, is what we're talking about now in California is a subdivision home ownership uh, creation product as opposed to just creating uh, rental units in existing homes. Um, but I actually wanna step away from single family homes for a little bit um, because in 49 states in the United States, we have huge fights around zoning. I mean, drag out absolute killer fights about you know, whether this should be a park or a shopping center, whether the shopping center, if it's failing, should become a park or apartments, whether we should mix uses, and, uh, and have uh, uh, you know, retail much closer uh, uh, and walkable to neighborhoods or whether neighborhoods need to you know, stay in these kind of enclaves of just uh, homes with schools and churches. These are big zoning debates. And those zoning debates, uh, you know, there's, there's parking and traffic and school, all the normal stuff that we all fuss about um, happens in uh, 49 states in the context of what the zoning is. Once zoning is resolved, for better, for worse, richer, poorer, in 49 states, you get to build what's legal under zoning. The exception is California. California does not let you build what's legal under zoning. With very few exceptions, most decisions about land use in California trigger this 1970 law called the California Environmental Quality Act, CEQA. And the point of CEQA is to force local government and state government to own up and disclose the environmental consequences of its decision-making including its decision to allow a particular kind of land use, including its decision to allow construction of a single family home on an existing lot in an existing neighborhood in compliance with every known and knowable standard, uh, whether it's California's very stringent uh, uh, building codes, uh, which require lots of energy and, and uh, water conservation, for example, its aesthetics and uh, kind of community character protection codes like setbacks for front and rear yards, a completely legal home can be challenged as an adverse consequence to the environment under this 1970 law called CEQA, which was never by the way intended to apply to either private projects at all, which require government approvals, or projects that comply with legislative decisions like zoning. But through a course now of more than 50 years of court interpretations, CEQA has been expanded and expanded again so that it now does apply not just to the construction of a single family home on an existing lot, but the construction of a deck or the replacement of windows or the 
the installation of, of, of any form of hot tub in Berkeley, for example, is a zoning compliant, but environmental review triggering activity. The environmental review triggering activity means that a lot of study needs to be done. And more importantly, and that adds cost and time, more importantly, anybody can sue the agency that's approving new housing for failing to comply with CEQA. Anybody, anybody can sue anonymously. We have examples of clear racial animus being used to sue projects under CEQA. We have religious animus being used to sue projects under CEQA. We also have business competition, labor agreement, just flat out NIMBY. I don't want this happening. And what is CEQA? What do you think about the environment? Well, we're all we're in California, you know, California is kind of a pain to live in a lot, but one thing we all pretty much agree is it's beautiful uh, and the climate's great. And so we all pretty much share the notion of protecting the environment. But the environment under CEQA has de been defined over a period again of years and court decisions to mean adding a kid to a school, adding a family to a park. Really? Yeah, really. Really. Pure population-based metrics, like adding a kid to a school, uh, is an environmental impact under CEQA. Pollution. Pollution, of course, is an environmental impact under CEQA. But so is driving an electric car one mile. We've decided that's an environmental impact under CEQA. Once we use CEQA, the environment, we kind of can cloak ourselves politically in this kind of green righteous shield. I am protecting the environment. It's not about keeping those people out. It's about protecting the environment. And Laura and I are our friends. Uh, we have huge respect for each other. But Laura, I can't even find a Republican. I live in Berkeley. The the anti-housing people I know, they're Democrats. They're liberal environmental Democrats. They live in Marin County, where a former NRDC lawyer is their congressman. And Marin County, which by the way, was just busted for intentionally segregating its own elementary school two years ago. This is not 50 years ago. This is not 20 years ago. This is now. Marin County's turned into a sundown county. Sundown towns, long discussed in literature, were places where African-Americans had to leave before sundown. They were accepted as workers and then expected to disappear so as not to bother anyone's sensibilities in those evening hours where you can stroll quietly amongst your neighbors. Marin County, the closest county to San Francisco downtown, is a sundown county. It just doesn't accept new people. And it doesn't accept new people because it's set aside more than almost 90% of its land is open space in the name of the environment. And so my view on this is not that zoning is California's challenge, because lots and lots of projects comply with zoning. But as long as anyone can sue anonymously, 
for what amounts to allowing a new kid to join the school or a new family to use the community park, California's redlining remains fully empowered under this hypocritical cloak of environmentalism. And it's nonsense. And anyone who really deals with pollution or really cares passionately about incredible places views the abuse of CEQA to protect the view, and CEQA protects private aesthetics, the view out your own bathroom window is somehow protected under the environmental cloak. That's the kind of stuff that we deal with in CEQA. It's a very lopsided system uh, in terms of, you know, people who sue can sue anonymously. If they win, they can recover attorney's fees, no matter what damage they cause the city, which can't complete its bike lanes and bike lanes are subject to CEQA uh, or uh, a, uh, a, uh, an applicant for housing, uh, including a single family home uh, applicant, one of whom, for example, was stuck in court for 11 years twice up to the California Supreme Court for a single family home under CEQA. That's what California has brought to sort of a very, very distorted and in my judgment, much more racist part of California's ethic because we can hide behind the environment, the environmental label. I would challenge you to think, what if Governor Wallace, since we're talking race, uh, had the ability to say, absolutely, let's, let's desegregate all those towns. Let's start with Selma. But I know, let's make adding a kid to an existing neighborhood, to an existing school, an environmental impact. Oh my goodness, how cool if you were Governor Wallace. And then, even if we take it out of the true environmental cloak, and put it into just costs, housing needs to pay its own way. So if you buy an existing house, your taxes pay for your kid to go to school. If you don't have enough existing houses, and California's running over 3 million short right now, existing houses, then you have to buy a new house and the new house is expected to not just pay taxes, but add to the cost of the new house, school fees, fees for transit, fees for road maintenance, fees and fees and fees. San Francisco was imposing $165,000 per apartment in fees on top of CEQA. This is an exclusionary system of California's own making. It's not just zoning. And in fact, I would submit to you, it's mostly not zoning. Even the very idea that it's zoning and we're quote, out of land, California is about 100 million acres, 5.3 is developed in urban or urbanized areas. So that includes all little downtowns and stuff in our small mountain towns and includes our big megalopolis areas. It's where, it's where almost all of us live, 5.3 acres, million acres, 5.3%. Um, we want to convert to solar and wind, and we're being told that's going to take 3 million acres, 3.1 million acres. So we've got land, apparently, for solar and wind, but we don't have land for 3 million homes 
because 5.3% is it. We can't go to 5.4%, 5.5%. And the reason I focus on the land issue is the other thing we don't talk about very much in California, which is it's not that we're sitting out there being anti-high rise. It's high rises cost so much more to build. They can't actually pencil. If you need to charge four or five, $6,000 a month in rent for a high rise building, have a good time. You're in what, three markets? At most, small neighborhoods in the greater scheme of things. But most people can't afford that. Duplexes, quads, small single family homes, what we used to call starter homes, they cost a fifth or less for a home to buy than a condo in a high rise. So we have this notion that climate change says we have to only live in existing neighborhoods and go high. Well, I mean, we had smog, we had water pollution, we now have clean cars. Is it really, really, really the case that code for high-rise non-ownership, non-poor people housing is the way California has to solve housing? Nope. And Ricardo and Laura will say, let's just change our single family neighborhoods and make them quads or put apartments in them. And so far we're, I think, what is it, Laura? Oh, for four years running now in persuading what amounts to a democratic majority, supermajority of the democratic party in Sacramento has rejected that concept over and over and over again. We have ADUs, we have junior ADUs. Each single family home can in fact be three units. I support the small lot subdivision. It's terrific what LA and others are doing with that concept. And with that, I'm just gonna say for housing, California is so deep underwater. I'm supportive of what I call an all of the above strategy. No one right now should be saying, you can't do that. You must instead do that. We are 3 million homes underwater. We have the nation's highest poverty rate, its highest homeless rate, and now we need places for people to live. Shelter in place cannot be accomplished without shelter. And in each of the past few years, we have reduced rather than increased our rate of housing production. We need to get out of our own way. We need to call, call it on the green cloak that's saying protect my school, protect my view, protect my park from those people. That's not the environment, that's racist. Michael, I'll turn it back. Thank you, Jennifer, very much. Appreciate that. And now uh, I am sure after all of that, there's people who want to weigh in on these issues. I've already got a uh, number of questions that have come in. But once again, you can ask them through any of our forums. If you're on Twitter, you can use the uh, hashtag Cato California. If you're on any of the uh, on the main Cato page, there's a box for you and you can come in with uh, any of the others. Uh, I'm actually going to, I know there's been some, want some cross talk on this and some responses, but I do have to ask a couple of questions first, and then I will uh, let you guys respond to these things as, as we go here. Um, the first is obviously, as, as expected, Laura's got a number of uh, questions for her. 
uh, as a result of her comment. And basically, they all boil down to this, is that whatever the uh, lack of merits in the Trump approach to uh, the affordable housing and the invasion of the suburbs, as he calls it, and so on, California is a Democratic-controlled state. Uh, San Francisco is a Democratically-controlled city. Uh, these are not states where Republicans are responsible for blocking uh, affordable housing. And in fact, you can even look to someplace like Berkeley, where Robert Reich is leading the charge against affordable housing uh, development in his neighborhood. So is it really fair to say that this is a partisan issue where Republicans are responsible? Uh, or is this something where there's bad guys on all sides? So I'm the first to say, I mean, I've been fighting for housing in San Francisco, right? So I am very used to liberal hypocrisy on this topic. Um, I think that Democratic governments uh, and, and, and California is a good example of Democrats owning all three branches of government. There is nothing stopping the government, the Democratic Party from solving this problem. Um, I think where my comments are really motivated is who I'm worried about. Um, so I started doing housing activism about six years ago, um, and it was an uphill battle at that time. Everybody thought we were crazy for saying, oh, we need to end single family homes only zoning on all sides. I didn't have any friends, right? I mean, we had some people who'd been in the mix for a little bit, um, but mostly it was people saying we were crazy and it'll never work. And where I think we have seen a lot of progress is currently, and it was in both parties, right? We were seeing progress for different reasons in both parties, but more progress in the Democratic Party. There was a easier willingness to admit that the housing shortage was doing a lot of damage, especially disproportionately to low income people and people of color. And especially now with uh, the sort of highlighting of issues of structural racism, there is more progress being made on Democrats getting better on this issue. And I am worried about the regression that the Republican Party has had recently on this issue. I, I think there was more hope four years ago, five years ago. The last year has been one where I have watched you know, zoning and protecting exclusionary zoning start to become a Republican talking point. And where I was feeling better was people would try to pretend it was about something else, right? They didn't want to be a total hypocrite. And so they would pretend it's, you know, oh, I'm going to give some kind of weird, nonsensical local control argument. And I was like, okay, like that I can work with because I know your answer doesn't make any sense, right? So we're eventually going to get the Democrats right on this issue. I want to get the Republicans right on this issue. And I and I, that's also my my plea to you all is you're the place where the Republicans could get right on this issue. All right, fair enough. Uh, just a, a couple more questions that uh, that I, I need to get to and then I'll let you guys uh, ask yourself each other questions or respond to each other for a minute here. Uh, the first is whether or not we've talked a lot about race, but is there not also something of a class war here? Uh, between uh, people who are want affordable housing and people who uh, basically use their house as an investment. So, so is, is that kind of part of what's going on here? And whoever wants to take that, go ahead, uh, Jennifer. Yeah, let me let me start. That is, uh, of course, class has a lot to do with this. Um, but California has done a pretty darn good job of hollowing out our middle class and making housing through a housing shortage, completely unaffordable. 
in any kind of proximate location to jobs. And that is a, uh, a war on the middle class uh, that has long, frankly, uh, used home ownership as a, as a wealth building opportunity. And when I talk about middle class, I'm talking about you know, the 80 to 120% median income households that are union workers, that are teachers, that are nurses. These are people who are now living so far away that they come into town, pre-COVID at least, and they sleep in their cars for a couple of nights a week because they cannot, cannot bring themselves to do three and four hour commutes every day. California has exploded in its super commute population. And now, by the way, it's exploded with remote work, which is a whole different phenomenon um, uh, and is the increasing uh, mode of non-travel is to, is to simply not travel at all. But of course, it's a class war. Just last month, we had the highest median home uh, sales uh, pricing in the Bay Area in history. We're in a COVID depression and still prices are rising. And that's because we simply don't have enough homes. We were creating nine jobs for every home for multiple years in the Bay Area. So what happened, we sprawled out to Central Valley and elsewhere. And now we have these very, very wealthy proximate enclaves. And then we have normal people. And that means they're not even talking to each other. They're not going to the same schools. They're not talking, uh, they're not, their kids aren't um, in church together, whatever. Um, and absolutely that has a color divide. Um, the San Francisco, of course, has had a collapse in its African-American population, its Latino population. One of our leaders, Willie Brown, uh, called it the African-American diaspora from San Francisco, partly because of being priced out with gentrification. And by the way, if you had a person of color, and I'm kind of this half breed, um, uh, and I respect Ricardo as well, but if we were talking about uh, the defenders of single family homes among people of color, we would be hearing about the selective targeting of those neighborhoods because they're lower, lower cost housing for various reasons um, by speculators and then the destruction of those neighborhoods and gentrification. So we have a very, very fraught emotional dialogue going on on all things housing, but it all comes down to a completely absolutely unacceptable and immoral constraint on supply, which has driven pricing out the window and has really harmed just everyone except the very top edges of the market. Uh, Laura, uh, you want to respond a little bit to that and then feel free. I know you wanted to respond to some other uh, points as well. So feel free to just go with this for a couple of minutes. Yeah, I think one thing especially that Ricardo touched on um, is that the federal government really played a heavy hand in helping white families build wealth for generation in housing. It was a product that was legally unavailable to anyone except for white families. And the government did a lot to make that asset perform, right? Very traditional concepts of like, why are white people in general so much richer than other people? It is primarily because of this effort that the federal government and local governments made to invest in white wealth. Um, and when we made racial discrimination in housing illegal, 
we really actually doubled down on this using wealth as a proxy for race that we made housing discrimination illegal, but by making the kind of housing that lower income people had better access to illegal in so many communities, you maintained exclusionary zoning, you maintained a lot of white family wealth in the existing housing that existed there and blocked new entrants. Um, and all of this, like I think that seeing this as a class war is correct, but you should also understand that why is class not distributed equally among people of various races is also tied up in this conversation. So, you know, if you want to be like race neutral, and, and I think this is also uh, to the point of like, what does reparations often mean, well, you can you can do a lot of race neutral policies that actually reduce the racial wealth gap because there is so much history of black and brown people being denied access to wealth. And so this is a, is a thing that I think is underappreciated that when we talk about the racial wealth gap, allowing anyone to buy housing, we're, we're not necessarily even needing. I mean, I, I think that some programs to directly invest in black home ownership are going to be great, but there is a lot of work to reduce the racial wealth gap that you can do simply by making things fairer. That's great. And did you, you wanted to comment, I think something in response to Jennifer as well? Oh, um, I think, well, we covered it a little bit in liberal hypocrisy. I think like if I ever implied that there wasn't a lot of liberal hypocrisy on this issue, like shame on me, there's a ton of liberal hypocrisy on this issue. Um, and I think, you know, making fun of limousine liberals is like exactly what we should be doing, but we do need that to then get somewhere. Um, I, I want it to be like, okay, I'm gonna call you on, uh, I wanna say bullshit, and I'm not sure if I can say that here, but I just did. Uh, <laughs> um, you know, I, I want, this is the thing about a two-party system where we're actually trying to achieve goals, which I don't think we are right now, is instead people are trying to win points and they're trying to win rhetorical points. They're not actually trying to solve problems for people. And I want us to get to a place where we actually try to solve people's problems. And I don't care if people are allowing more housing in communities because they want to save the environment or if they want to allow more housing in more communities because they want to reduce the racial wealth gap or if they want to allow more housing in more communities because they have an economic justification of like private property rights. Come one, come all, those three rationales will get you to the same answer, which is let's allow more housing in these exclusionary communities. And let's not allow, um, to Jennifer's point, the hijacking of local process to make illegal in practice what is legal in on paper. I think Jennifer's point is, I mean, we've, we totally agree with her on the process has to be uh, one in which what you say about the zoning on paper is what actually happens in practice. Um, we have allowed our system to be so complex in the permitting of housing that you know, retired lawyers have the most influence in the system because they have the most time to devote to thwarting every little proposal for housing in their neighborhood. That's great. Uh, 
can appreciate that. Uh, we're getting down to the last few minutes, and I want to. Get, I've got so many questions. So many people want to get involved in this. So uh, if you could keep your answers short, I'd appreciate it. And this is one for Laura, and then uh, Ricardo, if you could chime in as well uh, from the press, actually asking about houses of worship in the religious community. Have they been uh, good or bad on this issue, and how can they get more involved? Um, many that so one thing that happens a lot is um, as con congregations are in many cases shrinking or moving or changing, um, religious communities are motivated to want to do something good with some excess property that they have and often have been trying to build subsidized affordable housing and have come up against the ugliness of neighbors and communities not wanting to see that built in their community. And so the part of the faith community that has taken an active role in trying to build low income housing has been a real ally for the pro housing movement. Um, I think many, you know, you watch their hearts break, you know, they didn't, they've been doing, you know, work in these communities for a long time. And suddenly a neighbor is saying, oh, I don't want those people coming into our community. And that's just heartbreaking, because I think, you know, many of these faith communities didn't think, you know, they just didn't think there was that kind of ugliness. And, and there really is. Um, so I, I think there's a lot of opportunity for the faith community to take a more active role. Great. So, Oh, sorry, Ricardo, go ahead. Yeah, actually, th that's a great question, actually. I, so uh, part of our coalition, we initially went to the Catholic Church to get their support. It, it, it's a little more of a challenge because it's a bigger bureaucracy. But what's interesting is I found a document from the Bishop's Council in the 1970s that said that we should remove exclusionary zoning laws and build more. <laughs> really? I am not lying to you. Yeah, and you can, you can whoever's asked that question, you can get my information. But I found this document that actually specifically says exclusionary zoning and laws like that are not, not positive and that the church should, I don't know if it said do something, but it, it acknowledged it and acknowledged the concern because at that time we had a housing crisis as well. You know, I think the, the interesting thing about that question, so I, I, years ago, years and years ago, I went as a family trip, we went to New York and went to saw the Rockettes and that they started the show by saying, you know, he was this, he was that, he was homeless. He didn't have, and they were saying that was Jesus Christ, <laughs> Jesus of Nazareth didn't have a home, didn't have what we, if we wouldn't have what we consider today, any sort of wealth of, 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 of any kind. And so he, what would he be if he was alive today? Right. He would be homeless. He would be without a home. And so there's a really strong connection with faith, I believe, in this particular issue, because faith allows people to go beyond what they know and to look beyond and to think about it differently. I don't, again, we tried that here in San Diego. It wasn't completely something they got behind, um, but I really do think it, there is a role for the faith community to play in congregations about this issue and, and about really looking beyond what they perceive as their community and the character of that community. I have uh, one, one quick point I'd like to add, Michael. Um, uh, first off, I think this is likely to be for your listeners, the acronym of the day, YIGBY, Yes in God's Backyard. Um, there was a, a legislation uh, uh, enacted this year uh, to allow uh, it to be smoother for affordable housing projects, subsidized projects for low-income Californians to be built in the uh, parking lots of churches, the YIGBY statute. Um, uh, but that also does illustrate a really, really tough um, additional reality in California. 
and frankly, for me, a problem with trying to regulate the market in the way that we're at, at this point trying to do. One of the most effective ways to stop housing construction is to put in place an infeasibly high inclusionary housing requirement, which is to say for every home you build, you know, or for every 10 homes you build, two homes have to be a reserve for low income uh, households, uh, because that basically transfers the cost of those low income households to the other eight homes. Uh, and, and, and we have housing costs that are just too expensive already. Uh, but what we have in Sacramento right now is a huge fight between um, affordable housing advocates who only want to incent low income affordable constructions and uh, uh, to the exclusion or to the harm of uh, middle income construction. Uh, and that I think is another example of, you know, this, this circular firing squad that I experience within the Democratic Party of everybody saying yes in principle, but no if it compromises my specific passion. And so affordable housing advocates who don't wanna see middle income housing are among the biggest opponents to middle income housing legislation in Sacramento. It's very destructive. And of course, all of this nonsense happens based on a lack of leadership. Uh, and uh, as uh, Laura says, this leadership is in my party. It's among and, ex and exclusively between Democrats. All right, uh, one more question to you, Jennifer, on CEQA. Uh, questions come in. Uh, isn't it basically a shakedown racket where uh, secret challenges sort of disappear after uh, special uh, arrangements are made, uh, money changes hands and so on? Absolutely. Um, we, uh, one of the terms I use in uh, uh, a study of all CEQA lawsuits filed over a period of years is the bounty hunter syndrome where a lawyer can just literally make up the name of an entity that has no existence. It has no standing, it had no footprint on earth, um, but it had, uh, uh, it, it came out of a lawyer's typewriter or computer. Lawyer files a lawsuit um, and settles for 50 grand or 250 grand or whatever the um, uh, cost is uh, uh, of making that go away. Um, we have a similar um, extortion at, um, activity level that happens with labor unions who have been um, successful so far in defending their use of CEQA uh, against um, uh, racketeering lawsuits that have been brought by um, uh, victims of that uh, conduct. Um, so uh, it is absolutely a shakedown tool. Uh, and it's a shakedown tool, by the way, which is fundamentally anti-democratic, right? I mean, you have elected representatives who create zoning rules, you have projects that are then approved, consistent with zoning rules, and whoever the holdout is, um, uses CEQA to get whatever they want that they didn't get. All right. Well, thank you very much. Uh, quite a note to end on. Uh, yeah, Laura's got time for about 30 seconds here, and then uh, that's about it. Uh, I think one thing that is good to note about CEQA and about these, these really messed up processes and why do we end up with this circular firing squad is that there are a lot of communities that have been historically disinvested in that also use these same processes to get badly needed resources invested into them. And so one of these problems of like, how do we untangle the mess that we're in right now? 
means that we're going to have to figure out how to actually invest in these disinvested in communities while we solve the problem that CEQA is totally abused. And right now, the way the politics have shaken out, we haven't come up with a way to untangle it. There are a lot of people invested in the current fucked up system. All right. Uh, with that, we're going to have to call it a session here. Uh, Ricardo knows what I'm talking about. No, not at all. We're going to take a 15-minute break. Uh, the next session begins at 12.30 uh, p.m. P, uh, Pacific Daylight Time, and uh, that's 3.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Uh, in the meantime, uh, do check out the Cato Project on Poverty and Inequality at our website. And we'll be back in 15 minutes, and uh, we have some, very, some lively and interesting discussion coming up.